Okay, so we've had the, uh, a break for, uh, for a number of weeks. Um, I hope that doesn't mean that uh, you stop believing in anything <laughs> or that we've, uh, we've lost uh, you know, our momentum as far as, uh, as far as this is concerned. But we are up to the eighth principle. That's the one that, uh, that we're up to. And this one is, uh, the Hebrew for this is Tarmina Shamayim. The fact that the, it's our fundamental belief that the Torah is divine. It's something which comes from, uh, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as we, uh, as we shall explain. Now, uh, the principle deals primarily, the way the Rambam formulates it, if you were to look it up in the, uh, the Rambam himself, so it deals primarily with the revelation and the authenticity of Torah. And uh, the way that uh, I understand it, the way that we're going to work our way through this principle is that we're going to break down this principle into two different parts, two sub-principles, uh, if you will. And the first sub-principle is the belief that the entire Torah, and that's a pretty wide-ranging uh, um, uh, spectrum, but the entire Torah, both uh, the, the written Torah, the Torah Shabbat Sav, as well as the oral law, Torah Shabbat Peh, so uh, was given to Moshe on Harsinai. And Moshe went ahead, and this is going to be part of the, uh, the second sub-principle, but Moshe went ahead and faithfully and accurately transmitted uh, everything which he learned on Harsinai to Aaron, the Zikainim, and all of Yisrael. And those principles and those laws have subsequently been passed down generation to generation to generation to generation. That's what we call Masorah. Moshe Kibbal Torah Mestina, Masorah Yeshua, like we say over there at the beginning of, of Pirkei Avos. And all of that is, uh, we believe fundamentally, not only in the existence of such a Masorah, but we believe in the authenticity of that Masorah. And we believe fundamentally that it has been faithfully transmitted, uh, as opposed to when you play a, a good game of telephone with a good group of people and it gets passed around from one to the other to the other. And inevitably, by the time you go full circle, the message has been co completely corrupted. Our belief, as far as to, not only Torah Shabbat Sav, as we'll discuss, but more, uh, more importantly, Torah Shabbat Peh, it has been transmitted faithfully and the laws which we have uh, today, uh, as far as the Daraisa laws are, are concerned, so they are the sa exact same ones which are given to Moshe at, the, at Harsinai. And, uh, and uh, we, uh, we believe fundamentally that these laws which we have, at times we may struggle to understand their relevance, we may struggle to understand their logic, sometimes we struggle to understand the morality of some of those laws, but we have with absolute certainty that those laws were, as we said, were, were transmitted faithfully and they were not subject to subjective interpretation. They were not subject to emendations and changes and things along the other uh, way uh, by Moshe Rabbeinu or by any of the other great scholars of, of history. Now, it's important to point out that we differentiate between those things which are like let's say the 13 hermeneutic principles like we had in Dafyomi today so that is something which we believe that we have an absolutely um, flawless 
Mesorah, as far as that is concerned. But there is such a thing called rabbinic enactments. Certainly rabbinic enactments, which come from, from Chazal, are reliable. But there's also practices which are minhadrim. And if one is going to be uh, is going to be honest, if one is going to be analytical about things, so uh, minhagim are not the same thing as a daraisa. A minhag may have been inspired by a daraisa, may have developed over time based on daraisa principles, but it's actually not the same thing as a daraisa. It is not the uh, it is not God's work. Um, there's uh, somebody that I'm in touch with. Uh, they have a little bit of a Hasidic background. So by them, uh, uh, Pesach is a, uh, is a challenging time, uh, to say the least. And the struggle that this, uh, this woman was having was twofold. Number one was that they only eat uh, fruits and vegetables that you could peel on Pesach. So you can't have anything which does not, uh, does not get peeled, just in case the hummus was on the outside, so you're able to peel off the outside. So that was one thing which puts a limitation on what you're going to have. And then there's also the, 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 the custom which they have that if food falls on the floor, you throw it away. It doesn't matter if it's cold. It doesn't matter any of those things, any of those halakhic principles, which if you were to ask me the shayla, how I would rationalize that in my mind, and I would tell you, it's fine, just rinse it off and you don't have to worry about it at all. But then once it falls on the floor, it is... Uh, it's chazu trips. You might as well have a double bacon cheeseburger on Yom Kippur of Pesach to go ahead and uh, rather than eat some food which fell on the uh, the floor in advance of uh, or in preparation for Pesach. So uh, this particular woman that I, that I was in touch with, so she was particularly frustrated by this because there were a number of times that she had just finished, let's say, peeling her tomato if you can believe that people t- peel tomatoes like that and then after she finished peeling the tomato it fell on the floor. So all of her efforts to peel the tomato ended up being nothing because it fell on the floor and now she has to toss it. So she had expressed some frustration towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu as far as these halachas which are uh, restrictive and that she's struggling with. I said, hold on a minute. Your minute has nothing to do with God. Please leave God out of the equation over here where you're complaining about this minute because he did not tell us to do that. The proof to that I told her is I don't do any of that. <laughs> That's not my minute, and I'm not bound by either one of those two restrictions which you have. So please don't implicate God in your minute. Your minute may be well founded. It may have been uh, adopted and, uh, and, uh, and put into practice by great tzaddikim. I'm not denying that, but it's not God. So please don't implicate God in your uh, your frustration. Yes, Mel. When you say derisa, you only talk about the first five books. The yeah, we don't really introduce new Doraisas in the rest in the Vimin Ksuvim. Ah, you're going to point out that the Gemara a number of times uh, does point to Psukim in the or Ksuvim as the source for Halacha. That's the look on your face? Yes. I just want to know the first five books and not the Nevi'im and not the others. Right. So, so what happens is, is that uh, any halacha which we find, which seemingly stems from a pasuk or a story or something in Nevi'im or Ksuvim, what we say is, is that really that was part of Har Peh when Moshe Rabbeinu went on Har Sinai. And it was just one of the Nevi'im who went ahead and recorded it um, in writing for the first time. 
but not that Nevi'im are allowed to actually innovate a Doraisa halacha. Doraisa halacha is only, is, is limited to that which Moshe Rabbeinu was told to transcribe, Torah Shavachsav, and that which Moshe Rabbeinu was told Balpeh, told orally. But if Moshe Rabbeinu did not receive it, either Bixav or Balpeh, then by definition, it's not a Doraisa. Yes, Alan. What about the last eight or 12, however many it is, Sukkim that were written by Yahushua? Uh, yeah, so that's that's about Chalukas in the Gemara. Uh, I don't remember whether we're, uh, by the end of this principle, whether we will get to that or, or not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the Gemara discusses those last eight uh, when they were written by Moshe Rabbeinu with tears, when they were written by, by Yahushua afterwards. So, correct. Uh, short of that, short of those eight, which is Mark's explicitly tried to combine that into one word addressedly uh, uh, besides those eight sukkim which the, which the, the Gemara the addresses explicitly so uh, everything else was uh, was uh, was transcribed faithfully by most of it okay so now so that's the first sub principle the first sub principle is that uh, that uh, everything which we have is part of Torah so all of that was given to Moshe at Harsina the second sub-principle, which we already hinted to a little bit, but that is that, uh, that, he, that the Rambam himself, in his discussion, in his address of this, uh, of this principle, so he refers to Moshe Rabbeinu as a scribe, or what we would say nowadays is a secretary. Now, it's secretary actually may be a little, a little bit misleading, because sometimes you can have a, you know, the owner of the business who will give just Rashi Prakim, will just give an outline to the secretary, because uh, and then he will let her do her magic because she knows how to write and he doesn't and she knows how to write things diplomatically and he does not. Uh, so she may go ahead and and write things. But Moshe Rabbeinu was a scribe, meaning that his job was just to go ahead and write down exactly what was dictated. He's what he lets uh, probably a better term is a stenographer. So he was the Harsina stenographer carefully recording everything which was being said without any of his own interpretation. You gonna say something, Alan? It's transcriber was what I was thinking of instead of uh, uh, that, but Second. either way is good. Okay, good, transcriber, right. Excellent. So, so that is also a, uh, a, an important part of this, uh, of this issue, that what we have is accurate and it was not, uh, it was not interpreted at all, it didn't have to go through a Google Translate. It was not, uh, you know, the writer who used his own discretion as far as which words to use and whether to be dramatic or not dramatic and to uh, invoke poetic license or something like that. All of that is God's uh, God's words, and as we will uh, we will discuss, um, they, and that is that uh, there are certain mitzvahs of the Torah which we would really have no way of knowing how, if, if all we had was just what's written in the Torah, we'd have no way of knowing what exactly those mitzvahs involve. So you have mitzvahs like the sukkah. Torah says, So that means you should sit in the sukkah for seven days. That much is clear. Now, what's not clear from the Torah is, what's the definition of a sukkah? The Torah doesn't actually come along and define for us a sukkah is going to be four walls or three walls or two walls and a shtickle wall. It doesn't tell us what schach is going to be made of or is not allowed to be made of. 
where the Torah tells us by the Dal meaning, So the Torah says you're going to take a beautiful fruit. What's a beautiful fruit? So uh, without the oral law, we'd have no way of being able to arrive at the conclusion that pre-Eitz Hadar is an Esrog. Maybe you'll say it's a kumquat. Maybe you'll say it's an apple. Or maybe you'll say it's a prickly pear. Or whatever number, whatever fruit you want to go ahead and choose, you could choose anything because beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. And if the Torah just says a pre-Eitz Hadar, you have no way of going from that to an Esrog. And this is one of those things, which is, it's amazing to consider with all of the differences between Atazim and Sephardim and Hasidim and Misnagdim or Litvaks and the different types of Sephardim and the Taimanim and all of the different subgroups, none of those in that entire spectrum of, or, of orthodoxy have ever claimed that the pre-Eitz Hadar is anything other than an Esrog. That's clear. So with all of the differences which we have, the, we, we, everybody agrees that pre-Eitz Hadar is an Esrog, and the Torah does not translate pre-Eitz Hadar as Esrog. That's something which is known to us based on Torah Shabbat Heh. Or the mitzvah of blowing shofar. All the Torah says is that there's, you're, going to, uh, you're going to blast. Uh, it's a Yom Trua. It's a day of blasts. So how exactly we go from a day of blasts to blasting specifically a shofar as opposed to a trumpet or a trombone, and the specific sounds of a tkia and a shvarim and a trua and a shvarim trua, that's actually maybe durabanan, but all of the things which are along the way, the definition of tkia, the definition of trua, those things, the Torah itself does not define. And the only way we know how to do all of those things is based on the Torah Shabbat that accompanied, that accompanies the Torah Shabbat that we have, and that uh, indicates, that points to the, authentic, the, the necessity for, uh, number one, it points to the necessity for, all, for an oral law. And number two, it also indicates the faithful transmission of the oral law, being that over 3,300 years later, we still have uh, unanimity as far as what the definition of pre-Etzhadar is, how to fulfill the mitzvah of shofar, what exactly the mitzvah of sukkah is. And that's something which is, uh, is indicative of how strong and faithful that, uh, that, that the, the tradition is. Okay, so that is the, uh, the two sub-principles which we are going to explore over the course of this, uh, uh, this eighth principle. So now let's go uh, in a little bit uh, greater uh, depth. Now, the, uh, the belief that Torah Shabbat Peh, that the oral law was given to Moshe Rabbeinu Har Sinai, uh, is, and that it has the same importance as the written law as Torah Shabbat So this is something which is an essential part of this, uh, this principle. And the Rambam says explicitly in his halachic work, in the Yad HaChazaka, that somebody who denies the authenticity of Torah Shabbat Peh, they deny the authenticity of the oral law, like the Tzedukim, in various other groups uh, that, uh, that the, the Gemara will address at times. So the Rambam says very clearly that such a person is an Apicarus. There's no such thing as being a loyal, believing Jew and not believing in the authenticity and the faithful transmission of Torah Shabbat. But besides the fact that tradition tells us that this principle is true, 
as we as we quoted already in the first Mishnah and Pirkei Avos, Moshe Kibbal Torah Vesina Masarli Yeshua Yeshua Zakenim, etc. So not only is it true, but logic, if you just think about the Torah by itself, logic also indicates that there has to be an oral tradition. It's impossible to think at all that there could exist a work such as the Torah without an accompanying oral tradition to go ahead and give it definition and give it meaning. And as we're going to see now, and to actually to be able to make any sense out of it whatsoever. Everybody here has seen uh, a page from a Sefer Torah. You've seen the, uh, an open Sefer Torah. And what you know when you look at an open Sefer Torah is it's missing two very important literary devices. Number one is it's missing vowels. And number two, it's missing punctuation. So imagine you were to go ahead and open up the newspaper today, and you're going to read the leading article of the newspaper without any vowels and without any punctuation whatsoever. So you just have consonants. So how are you going to go ahead and make sense out of that news article if all you have are a bunch of consonants together without any punctuation telling you where the sentence ends and where the next sentence begins, without any vowels to tell you how to pronounce those words? Needless to say, that would be an enormous challenge to go ahead and pull that off because we're just not trained to go ahead and read in, in, in that way. And the Torah would, uh, would also, it would be essentially a closed book in the event that one were to go ahead and try and interpret the Torah without having an oral tradition of Nekudos and having an oral tradition as far as where Pesukim end, because there's no way that we'll be able to make sense out of any of it whatsoever. None of it would make any sense uh, uh, whatsoever without that. So, um, so, therefore, so the first, uh, the first, the first point is uh, the, the uh, as, a, as a proof of sorts to the existence of Torah Shabbat Peh is the fact that we only have vowels and uh, and um, and punctuation. Uh, from Torah Shabbat Peh. So that's number one, and that is, uh, is, is one level of, uh, of, uh, of an indicator of the fact that there has to be a Torah Shabbat Peh which accompanies the Torah Shabbat Now, Rabbi Yudah Levi, uh, who is the author of the Kuzari, so he gives another of, uh, a, a number of other examples of laws of the Torah, halachas which we take for granted, uh, just because we've grown up with them, and they've been part of our um, perspective in our vision of Torah since we first started learning Torah. But the, the, the Kuzari points out that if you take a step back and you think about it uh, uh, from, that, uh, from a different perspective, you'll see how these mitzvahs actually are impossible to interpret without Torah Shabbat Peh. So for example, well, one of the first examples he gives is the basis in the foundation of the Jewish calendar. So the basis in the foundation of the Jewish calendar essentially comes from a five-word phrase in the Torah. The five-word phrase of the Torah is, HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem Rosh Chadashim. This month for you is going to be the first of the months. That's the translation of the word. So assuming that you know the Nekudos and you're able to punctuate that sentence. So you know how to put that together. So it says this month is going to be the first of the months. So those who have, uh, uh, um, 
maybe you know, maybe this is something that you don't know too much. One of the things which I, I struggle with, uh, uh, if you come to the call with me at any time, you know, I'm the only one who tells everybody that my brain doesn't process pronouns. People call up the hotline and they have a shyla and they talk about he and he and he and he and he. And after, by the second sentence, I have no idea whether the he is the plaintiff, the he is the defendant. I have no idea who they're talking about uh, when they just keep using pronouns and no way of indicating who the pronoun is referring to. So I am a big anti-pronoun -pro, uh, uh, fella because I just can't follow. So in this sentence, it says, Hachodesh Hazeh, this month is the first of the months. What's this month mean? It means this month, right? Now we happen to know that it's the month of Nisan, but we only know that because we've grown up with Torah. And we've grown up with that interpretation and it's been drilled in our head from whenever we started learning Torah, they at the beginning of the Jewish calendar when Klai Yisrael was still in Mitzrayim was the month of Nisan. And then that, that becomes the first of the 12 months, but there's absolutely nothing in the Torah per se, which tells us that that's, that's going to be the case. So, um, uh, and what, what, what also what's, what's amazing about this is, is that with this statement, these five words, this is the origin of the Jewish calendar, which means that up until this moment in history, Klai Yisrael didn't have their own calendar and their, their uh, reference of time, the passage of time, had to have been based on somebody else's calendar. Otherwise, there'd be no way of uh, being able to mark the passage of time. So when God comes along and says, this month is now the beginning of the months. So does he mean April? Does he mean March? Does he mean the Egyptian calendar that they were in? Does he mean the Chaldean calendar, which Avram Avinu must have grown up with? It could have referred to all sorts of different calendars which were already in existence at the time that this statement was made. And the very fact that we interpret it to mean that there's going to be a Jewish calendar and that the month of what we eventually named Nisan is going to be the first of those months and that we're going to have a whole Jewish year. So that is something which we only know to be true based on Torah Shabbat. But not only that, it may very well be that maybe what God meant was that this solar month in which you find yourselves in the springtime over there in Mitzrayim in 2448, that solar month is going to be the beginning of the year. Or maybe God meant the lunar month. This lunar month that you find yourself in, that's going to be the first of the, uh, the months. Uh, uh, somebody mentioned to me that uh, we with Rosh Chodesh now we entered Ramadan. Is that true? Okay, excellent. So I mean, whatever it is, but uh, but but Ramadan, uh, the uh, the Muslim calendar is a purely lunar calendar, which means that depending on uh, you know year after year, it gets pushed off later and later. So now they enter into what I imagine for the Muslims is the bad part of the cycle because Ramadan is going to be in summer months where the daytime is longer. It's much easier to fast the whole day when Ramadan falls in the middle of the winter. So then you wake up in the, by four o'clock in the afternoon or five o'clock, you could already start eating. Here, they have to wait till 7.38. Next year, it'll be even later than that. And it'll keep it progressively, I guess, going 11 days later each and, every, each and every year. So maybe that's the way the calendar should function. Maybe we're going to be on a purely lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. 
this notion that we have that the we're going to go on a lunar calendar, but with a solar correction to make sure that Pesach always falls in the springtime, Chodesh Aviv and Chag Aviv. So that is something which we only know to be true based on Torah Shabbat. With these five words, there's no hint whatsoever as to which month we're referring to, which calendar we're referring to, how exactly the Jewish calendar is going to be structured. And yet, like we said before, amazingly, with all of the, the, uh, the differences that the Temanim have, or that, uh, that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Ethiopian Jews, the ones who were cut off for an, uh, 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 even longer than the, that, uh, everybody's in agreement as far as the months of the calendar are concerned. Nobody has a different calendar. Nobody has a different set of months. Nobody thinks that really that there's going to be a purely solar year or purely lunar year or anything of that sort. We all keep the same calendar. And that's because of the faithful transmission of Torah Shabbat, which we have, which keeps us in line and keeps us in lockstep with one another as far as interpretation of the Torah. So that is one example. That the that the uh, that the uh, the Kruzari brings, then the Kruzari brings another example. It's an amazing, amazing. I find it to be an amazing, amazing example, and it's something which also is one of these fundamental laws which we uh, follow, if not on a daily basis, uh, certainly on a weekly basis. And that is the pasuk that the Torah uses to teach us about shechita or ritual slaughter. Now, those who don't know what exactly the pasuk says. So the Pasuk says, it's in Devarim Yudbeis Chafalev. It says the, the extent of the Torah's address of ritual slaughter to be able to eat pastrami or to be able to eat uh, roast beef or brisket or something like that. The Torah says, V'zavachta mi umitzoncha. You will slaughter, let's just translate it as, as that, but you will slaughter the, the cattle or the sheep Asher nasan Hashem lecha, which Hashem has given you. Here come the key words. Kasher tzivisicha, as I have commanded you. So in simple English, it means Hashem says, when you're going to go ahead and you're going to eat meat, when you're going to slaughter a cow or a bull or a sheep or a lamb or a goat, make sure that you slaughter it exactly as I instructed. Okay, so if you see that, what you would normally do in any other book that you would have, you would look at the footnote, because there has to be a footnote there where if you say, as I have instructed you, and you have to find the cross-reference. So it has to be a cross-reference somewhere in the Torah where we're going to find a more thorough and explicit address of exactly what the procedure is for slaughter, right? That's what you would expect. But amazingly, uh, you could search the entire Torah from beginning to end, forwards, backwards, every other word, every third word, every fourth word, you could go through the entire Torah and you will not find any hint whatsoever to this phrase, as I have instructed you. There's no cross-reference whatsoever in the Torah to this notion. So the question is, what exactly does, what, what exactly does, uh, does the Pasuk mean? How could the Pasuk be telling me that the slaughter is going to be exactly as I've instructed you, and there's no reference whatsoever in the Torah to what that instruction is. And once again, there seems to be this uh, unanimous uh, agreement 
exactly how shrit is supposed to be done, how the knife is supposed to be, where you cut on the neck, how much of the neck you have to cut, the difference between shechting uh, chickens, if that is a daraisa, in shechting animals, all of those things are universally agreed upon in terms of the basic halachas. And yet the Torah, it's not even like the Torah is mysteriously silent over here. This is even more um, shocking because the Torah says, I want you to shech as I have instructed to you. But nowhere in the Torah is that instruction found. There's no cross-reference. So what could that possibly mean? So it only, it must be that that pasuk indicates us, says the, uh, the Kuzari, that's a clear indication of the existence of Torah Shabbat. Otherwise, even if one were to deny, if one were to deny the existence of Torah Shabbat, then it's just a terrible editing job. Who didn't catch the fact that it says, as I have commanded you, and nobody bothered to check up on that reference and see where exactly that is. Just take out that phrase. If the Torah just said, I want you to chef the cattle and the sheep, which Hashem has given to you, period. Okay, that, that, would, that would be a comprehensible sentence. We would know what the sentence means if we were to say such a thing. Why add in those words, kashir tzivisicha, without that cross-reference? So the only way to make sense of that, says the Kuzari, is the fact that, that this pasuk indicates to us that there's such a thing as Torah Shabbat. Third example. He says, the Pasuk says, this is in Vaik, we had it a couple of weeks ago, says, mm-hmm. I think it is. So a literal translation of that Pasuk says, any fats, in any blood, you're not allowed to go ahead and consume. Now, what exactly does that term, what what what, what fats are going to be prohibited? Now, if one is uh, into healthy eating, so they will go ahead and they will argue, you know what the Torah is telling you over here? That you have to have fat-free meat. Because the Torah says, kochelev lo you're not allowed to have any fat whatsoever. So when you go into the butcher shop, those who are old enough to remember going into a butcher shop, so you go into the butcher and you have to tell them, listen, you got to cut away all the fat. Can I leave a little bit for some taste? Nope. No fat, no grippiness, no none of that stuff. No fat is going to be allowed at all. you got to get rid of all of the chelev, all of the fat whatsoever. Now, we happen to know, luckily, that that's not true. That there are what we refer to as there are certain chelev, certain fats of the animal which are prohibited in a very severe prohibition of that. But there are plenty of fats, what we call shuman halakhically, plenty of other fats of the animal which are perfectly acceptable for consumption. So this misleading pasuk when it says, ko chelev, lo chelu, that you're not allowed to eat any fat whatsoever, Torah Shabbat Pet tells us it doesn't really mean every fat. It means the fats which we have identified elsewhere, i.e. Torah Shabbat Pet, those are the chelev, that's the chelev that you're not allowed to consume, but other things are going to be, uh, are going to, are going to be permitted. And therefore, you could have that, uh, you know, you don't have to have 100% lean uh, hamburgers. You can have a little bit of fat in there, but telling you that uh, what your cardiologist may recommend. But as far as halachic uh, uh, allowance is concerned, so it's perfectly acceptable to go ahead and have that. On top of which, another thing which they, uh, which uh, some of the commentators point out is that going back to the first point that we made, remember we said the first point is, is that uh, absent um, 
vowels and punctuation, it becomes very difficult to go ahead and make any sense out of the Torah whatsoever. So here is one of those examples where the word chelev is written ches lamed vase, and the nakudos are aa, chelev, or af. It's a tsere and a segel, kol chelev v'choldam. Now, if you take those exact same letters, ches lamed vase, so probably if you saw the word without nakudos, uh, the more likely term, the more likely way that you would read that word is chalav, which means milk. So if the Torah is written without nakudos in it, the exact same letters spell chalav, meaning fat, or chalav, meaning milk. So what exactly is the Torah answering? Is the Torah answering fat, or is the Torah answering milk? Maybe we should be uh, milk-free. We should go... Uh, um, uh, lactose intolerant, and uh, get rid of all of those. Uh, you know, not allow any mil- any milk whatsoever. So this is something. Also, the only way, that, the reason why we read the pasta as kochel is by definition something which indicates to us that Torah Shabbat is strongly at work over here, and that's how we know how to read the uh, the uh, the pasta. Okay, two more examples. Uh, we'll go through just because they are. They, uh, they, uh, they further emphasize the, uh, the point. And here's one which is hugely encompassing in terms of its scope. So we know that uh, Shabbos, the halachas of Shabbos are, um, I don't want to say restrictive, but there are numerous halachas related to Shabbos. But amazingly enough, in the, in the, uh, the Mishnah, if I remember correctly, in, the, in Chagiga talks about this, so the, uh, the Mishnah says that the halachas of Shabbos are numerous and they hang by a hair. What does it mean that they hang by a hair? Because the only thing that the Torah tells us as far as restrictions of Shabbos is do not do malacha. That's it. Now, what exactly is malacha? Torah doesn't interpret that. How many malachas are there? The Torah doesn't tell us that either. All the Torah says is, and it repeats the prohibition numerous times, but it doesn't give any further definition to that prohibition. All it does is, it says, melacha, you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. So what is or what's not included in that prohibition? Who said that if I enjoy going out on the weekends, as Mel likes to, to do, maybe not only during the weekend, during, even during the week, but if somebody enjoys gardening, so who's to say that that's work? People find gardening to be a pleasurable thing. They go out there, that's how they relax. They may go out in the garden and spend a few hours and that's a relaxing activity for them. That's their rest over the weekend. Or cooking. Who says cooking is, why, why should cooking be something which is so fundamentally prohibited on, on Shabbos? I, I enjoy cooking. I enjoy making myself, a, if I have a little time to make, uh, you know, who doesn't enjoy salami and eggs uh, for breakfast in the morning? So that's something which would be a pleasure when you don't have to rush out to, uh, to go to work to make yourself a good salami and eggs on some toast or something, mamish got eaten. So wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to enjoy on Shabbos? If Shabbos anyways is the ate Olam Haba, so we imagine, we assume that Olam Haba, we're going to be eating big, uh, salami and eggs all the time, and therefore why shouldn't we be able to enjoy that on Shabbos? Or how can anybody claim that uh, the activity of turning on a light or turning the stove on is considered to be a malacha. Why should that be a malacha? It's just the turn of an eye. That's all, that's, all, that's all it is. Clearing this Shabbos table is much more active work than turning on the stovetop or turning on a light. And yet, turning on a light is absolutely prohibited. And uh, clearing the table is, is fine. So 
the whole concept that we have of Hilchos Shabbos, 39 malachas, and what, what's going, what are going to be those malachas, those activities which are, which are prohibited, the Torah does nothing explicitly to define what's going to be encompassed by that prohibition. And our only awareness of that is something which is going to come from Torah Shabbat. Okay, one last example, and that is um, the, the example of tefillin. So what does the Torah say as far as tefillin is concerned? Or it says it a couple of times, but one of the Pesukim says, you will tie it as a sign to your arm. <clears throat> you'll cannot it, you'll bind it to your arm. And, uh, right. So, and it shall be, right. So now the first difficulty is the word totafos. Totafos is not a Hebrew word uh, because as, uh, as you know, most Hebrew words, if not the, you know, will have two or three uh, root letters in terms of the definition. Uh, but the word totafos has way too many letters in it. Uh, and it's, that doesn't follow regular Hebrew pattern as far as conjugation is concerned. And in fact, the Gemara and the commentators, they struggle to try and identify the exact translation, the exact meaning of the word totafos. We don't know exactly what it is. So that's one thing which is difficult to understand. But okay, Zolzai, let's assume that we could get around that, uh, uh, get, get around it. But another problem that we have is, it says, So the tefillin are going to be between your eyes. So where exactly is between your eyes? Most of us would assume between your eyes is right here, between your eyes. Where else is between your eyes going to be? Other than between your eyes. So now it happens to be that historically there were groups of people who claimed that the Torah, those who deny Torah Shabbat Peh, so they claimed that we should go ahead and we're going to take the Torah literally. If the Torah says, Ben Enecha, then we're going to go ahead and we're going to put our tefillin, Ben Enecha. This is one of the things that the Gemara, that the Mishnayis and the Gemara in, the, in the Megillah talked about. But they went ahead and they said, listen, we're going to take the Torah for its word and we're going to put it, Ben Enecha, literally between their eyes. Now we know from experience and from the way we grew up uh, and from those who have d- did it in Dafyomi. So we know that what Chazal's interpretation, what Torah Shabbat Peh tells us Ben Enecha means is that the tefillin shalrosh are going to be situated on the head above the hairline. It can't go dip beneath, below the, uh, the hairline. And Ben Enecha means as far as the horizontal placement is concerned, it has to align itself between your eyes. So the middle of your shorosh theoretically should correspond to that spot between your eyes. So that's really what bein enecha means. And it doesn't mean literally that the tefillin, the box is going to sit between your eyes or on your forehead. It means it's gonna sit on top of your head, but aligned this way between the eyes. So now, where does that, where does that, uh, that come from? So we know that is part of Torah Shabbat Pet. Torah Shabbat Pet tells us that that's the, the interpretation of Torah, that's the Torah Shabbat Pet interpretation of the Torah Shabbat Now, where the absurdity arises is, what about those groups who claimed that we're going to take the Torah for its word? All we have is Torah Shabbat no Torah Shabbat whatsoever, and therefore we're going to interpret the Torah literally, and we're going to put the tefillin right over here between the eyes. You know where the argument falls apart? What goes inside of those tefillin? 
The Torah doesn't say. The Torah doesn't tell us which parshios we're going to put in the tefillin. The Torah doesn't tell us that the shalmosh is going to have four compartments and that shalyad is going to have a single compartment. None of that is mentioned in the Torah at all. The Torah doesn't hint at all that your tefillin have to be black. The Torah, as far as if you just take the, the, the Torah's concern, you should be able to make that, if it's a box, we don't even know that it's a box, but whatever that tefillin is going to be, why can't it be any color? You should be able to match whatever sleeve you're wearing or something like that. There's no indication at all from the Torah what the tefillin look like, what's inside of those tefillin. Forget about the placement of it. The placement of it is like the last of the issues. First, you have to know how to manufacture it. Who, how are you possibly going to know how to manufacture it? Torah doesn't tell us anything about that at all. And for us, those of us who are believers in Torah Shabbat, so we have no issue with it because the, the meaning of that is pretty easy and straightforward. Whatever the Torah does not tell us, Torah Shabbat supplements. It tells us it's going to be square. You're going to have these parashios in it. The parashios are going to be in whatever order they're going to be in. All of that stuff is all part of the Torah Shabbat element of it. And we have no issue with that, with that whatsoever. But those who come along and wanted to claim tefillin belong right smack between the eyes, bein and echa, literally. So as he said, that argument falls apart as soon as you go ahead and you ask them, what are you putting inside those tefillin? And there's nothing in the Torah. If you're going to be a literalist of the Torah, there's nothing at all to tell you that they should be, uh, that they are going to be part of the, uh, uh, that they're going to be specifically between the eyes. So this is, um, so this clearly indicates that even those groups which uh, allege that they're only going to be believers in Torah Shabbat and they're not going to be believers in Torah Shabbat, that's not really a sincere claim. It can't possibly be a sincere claim. You can't really build a religion on that because the Torah itself as a book does not give nearly enough information for it to be a, a uh, instruction manual of how to do the mitzvahs, which it says that you're supposed to do. Way too many of, way too many of the mitzvahs are left vague or undefined or without any explanation whatsoever in the absence of a Torah Shabbat path. So now, uh, and with this, we'll, uh, we'll conclude for, the, for this week, but here we have two essential elements which point to the absolute necessity of Torah Shabbat Peh. And they are number one, you can't even read Torah Shabbat without it. Absent vowels and absent punctuation, it's impossible to read something if you just have consonants. And then number two, even if you're able to get around that problem, you're able to read it with the correct punctuation and the correct, uh, the, uh, the correct vowels, you're still gonna run into a problem because there's not enough information in the text to be able to give clear definition as to how to do so many of the mitzvahs and many of the most fundamental mitzvahs. Remember that for years and years, uh, for generations perhaps, the, the primary way that we would go ahead and we define whether somebody is a religious Jew or not, do they keep Shabbos, do they keep kashras? That was like the fundamental uh, definition of what it means to be a religious Jew. Do they keep Shabbos, do they keep kashras? And now we just discovered that the observance of Shabbos and the observance of Kashrus are not explicit in the Torah at all. The Torah says you're not allowed to do malacha, 
but that's the extent of the instructions. None of the other prohibitions, uh, uh, none of what is included in that is described in the Torah. And the fundamental principle of kashas, of slaughtering an animal, being able to eat meat, is also something which the Torah says, I told you how to do this already. And the Torah doesn't say anywhere how to do that. So these two fundamental laws of the definition of a from Jew of kashas and Shabbos, by definition, requires, demands, the belief in a Torah Shabbat. And it's completely absurd to think that one is going to follow just the written law and be a functional practicing Jew when the Torah doesn't give any of that uh, nearly enough information to go ahead and uh, to uh, define for us what exactly is going to be included in the mitzvahs. Okay, good. Okay, so we are going to hold it over here uh, tonight. Don't forget Thursday night. We're going to meet once again. We said eight o'clock, right? Okay, 8 o'clock. And um, as we uh, go on through the summer, so you'll have to pay attention to the emails which appear at the beginning of the week to know uh, what time the class is going to start. Because as Mincha gets later, at a certain point, Mincha will be later enough. We'll probably do class before Mincha, just because otherwise it just pushes it uh, too late. But for right now, so we'll, uh, we'll continue for, uh, for afterwards, at least for the next, uh, the next few weeks, probably at least till Shavuos. And then we'll see what happens after that. All right. Hey, thank you, Rabbi. Hey, thank you, Rabbi. All right. So all the best. Stay healthy and stay safe, everybody. Thank you.